The Insurance and Injury Law Show. Anytime you need to get a hold of James or the crew, it's one 990 9646 Email is help at Got a bunch of emails and questions to get through today. Going to be a busy show and want to talk about the injury calculator in just a bit as well. But first, James, as always, brother, we always talk about the, uh, the week that was, things that have been going on in your world. What's happening? We got a question on uh, mydisabilityquestions.com cool. from Linda that I wanted to share with our audience. So Linda writes, My insurance company is going to cut off my LTD benefits at or before the two-year mark. I am still unable to work. I also collected, sorry, I also collect CPP disability, which my insurance company had me apply for. If I'm cut off my LTD through my insurance company, will it affect my CPP disability benefits? Short answer is no, it won't. They are completely separate processes, but... It's an interesting topic to discuss, the the context of CPP disability benefits and LTD. So this is something that does come up, and as Linda has indicated, her insurance company had her apply for um, the CPP disability. And the reason that they do that, it's in the insurance company's interest because virtually every policy has a provision that says you're required to apply for CPP disability. And if you're approved for CPP disability, the insurance company gets the credit. So whatever amount that the CPP is paying, that is just deducted from the amount that your LTD insurer is required to pay you. So it's to their advantage and it's in the policy. And the way that they force you to do it is there's almost always going to be language in the policy that says if you don't apply for CPP disability, then they can take the credit anyway. So you might as well apply. If you get it, you're no worse off anyway. And if you don't, they can't deduct anything. So you apply. Now, whether or not your insurance company subsequently ends your LTD payments, that doesn't have an impact on CPP. CPP disability is a completely separate process run by the government. Um, They have a different test. It's actually a more stringent test Mm -hmm. than your LTD um, disability insurer typically will have. And in and of itself, if you are still getting your CPP disability, that is a pretty good argument to use against your LTD insurer. It doesn't, uh, it's not a final answer. It's not um, the only thing that you need in order to attack a denial from an insurance company, but it's a real good start. And if someone's coming to me and saying their LTD insurer has cut them off, but they're still getting CPP disability, I'm almost always going to be very interested because Typically, that means that there's a very good claim against the insurance company. So is it going to affect, Linda, is it going to affect your CPP disability benefits? No. Um, The only way it's really going to have an impact is if you do get cut off your um, disability benefits, as opposed to um, the CPP disability going directly to your insurance company, now it's going to come to you. So the denial from your insurance company will not be the full effect that it would be if you weren't getting CPP disability. You'll just go back down to the level of CPP disability, but we, of course, can challenge your insurer on their denial and hopefully get you right back up to the level you're at now. So basically, there's never any double dipping. You're going to be made whole, whether through one or the other or both, right? Well, that's almost always going to be the case, but yeah. every disability policy um, can be different. Most of them are are fairly standard and have very similar um, you know, policies and exclusions mm-hmm. and credits um, within them. And so that's typically how a disability policy is going to work. But you have to look at each policy separately. Um, and each policy can be drafted differently. It's a contract at the end of the day. And so if there is no deduction for CPP disability, then yeah, you can double tip. 
There's no reason why you can't. If you're, mm-hmm. you know, and if somehow you're able to negotiate with your LTD insurer that there's no deduction for CPP disability, or you're purchasing some other product that's like a LTD but slightly different and doesn't have that discount for or the credit for CPP disability, sure, you can get both. But it really depends on the policy itself, and most policies are going to have a credit for the insurer for that. Again, that question came from MyDisabilityQuestions.com. You can go there anytime, ask your questions. James, uh, Savannah, member of the team, will pick them up and answer them right away. Chances are your question uh, might have already been asked, so check it out. There's a drop-down menu and list of questions and answers there uh, already. Anytime, the number one 888 Let's get to an email before we uh, take a first break here. Laura writes in, says, I was in a car accident a year and ago, uh, and I've been back to work since that time. I had a few fractures, and I was in the hospital for almost a month after the accident. My paralegal says that she will connect me with a lawyer to start a tort claim. Uh, what is that, and is this the right time for me to do it? I've been paying her uh, on all the benefits I've been getting. I'm in a very difficult financial situation. Great question, Laura. So uh, this is a really good opportunity, actually, to discuss um, two different legal processes that happen when you're in a car accident in Ontario. By law, everyone who's injured in a car accident in Ontario, whether you are the driver, whether you're a passenger, um, whether you're a pedestrian, whether you have insurance or not. Everyone who is injured as a result of a car accident in Ontario is entitled to claim statutory accident benefits. And this is just basically an insurance claim. Typically, it's against your own insurer, but if you don't have your own insurance company, you can claim against the insurance company of the driver of the car that you're um, riding in, or if you're a pedestrian, the driver of the car that hit you, or if nobody has insurance, there's even a fund set up by the government. So in every situation, there is an insurance company or at least a fund that will pay these benefits. They will pay for up to $400 a week in income replacement. They'll pay for medical and rehabilitation. So that's one process is called accident benefits. And that appears to be what Laura is getting right now um, through her paralegal, um, although her paralegal is charging her a percentage of the benefits, which frequently happens when you're dealing with a paralegal. And the reason for that is because paralegals aren't allowed to represent you in the second part of the legal process, the tort claim, which is what Laura was asking about. Paralegals can only represent you for the acts and benefits. And because of that, they have to charge you a percentage. If they don't, they can't make any money. Mm. Um, That makes sense. And I'm not faulting the paralegals for that. But if you are going to a lawyer anyway, um, let's say you have a tort claim, as it appears Laura does. Now, a tort claim just means a legal claim against the at-fault party in the car accident. So this might be the driver of the car that hit Laura. It could be the driver of her own car if she was a passenger. Um, but it's whoever is at fault for the accident, it's a legal claim against them. That's the tort. And so the paralegal can't represent Laura for that. So she has to come to a lawyer. So if you come to our firm, for example, the way it works is we will start the legal claim, the the tort claim against the at-fault party, and we're also going to do the accident benefits. But because you know we, our, our business is really the tort claim, we provide the accident benefits free of charge. We're not going to take a penny out of your accident benefits as long as your insurance company is paying those benefits voluntarily. And typically, at least early on, particularly if you have um, a, a, a serious injury or an objective injury, your insurance company isn't going to deny those benefits out of the gate. 
Now, at some point, they may well cut off your benefits or deny your benefits. And at that point, if we have to negotiate for anything further, then we would take the usual percentage. But up until that point, we're not going to take anything for your income replacement benefits, and we're not going to take anything for your medical and rehab benefits. If your insurance company is approving those claims, you're going to get the full benefit of that. Full stop. Lots more to come. We'll get the questions and more emails dealing with the insurer and the insurer and the employer, whatever, who's paying your benefits and how to navigate that particular situation. After we uh, we take a short break, one 990 and help at the as well. It's the Insurance and Injury Law Show, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. 1-888-990-9646, the number, anytime you want to send an email along because uh, James is getting through quite a few over the course of this hour, help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. You want to find out what the pain and suffering component of your claim should be. We'll get to that in just a little bit. But in the meantime, you can check out injurycalculator.ca as well. Uh, so how do you deal uh, with a situation where the employer is the one paying the long-term disability benefits, but the insurer is just involved in administering the disability plan and the individual uh, is denied his or her claim? What do you do then? Well, from the client's perspective, there's really no difference. Um, Legally speaking, you're going to want to make sure that you bring a claim against both the employer and against the insurance company um, that's providing the administrative services. And just so our audience understands, um, this is not an unusual setup. Um, Oftentimes, with larger employers, they'll find it's more cost-effective for them to be the one that is um, paying out the benefits as opposed to having to pay someone else for the premiums um, and you know have them pay the benefits out and you know, let, allow them to make the money off of it. A lot of larger employers will just um, fund the policy themselves and pay out the benefits as they're payable, but because the employer is typically not in the business of administering insurance claims, they will hire a third party who is almost always going to be um, one of your um, larger insurance companies that typically does do disability claims themselves um, to administer the policy for their employees. They're just providing administrative services. So you work for your employer, your employer is the one that's providing you the benefits um, and will pay you if you're entitled to it, but if you have a claim, that claim Get right. sent off to this administrating insurance company, and that insurance company will, you know, hire um, a doctor if necessary to review the claim and have a handler take a look at it and decide whether they believe that you're entitled to the benefits. They'll then send that back to your employer, and in theory, it's your employer's decision as to whether or not you get the benefits at that point. But uh, on a practical level, they will virtually always accept the opinion of the administrative. Um, services company, the insurance company that they've hired. So you have to bring a claim against both the employer and the administrative services um, company. They're slightly different claims, but you don't really need to worry about that from the perspective of um, the person making the claim. We can handle that from our end, and it really doesn't make much of a difference in terms of how the claim proceeds or the likelihood of success. 1-888-990-9646, one 990 as mentioned, is the uh, number to get a hold of James and uh, Savannah and the team anytime or simply help at theinsurancelawyer.ca through email. This next email is timely. It's seasonal, but this is a bit of a freaky situation. Got to read this to you. Uh, Greg wrote in, says, my brother rented a cottage three weeks ago, and when he was on the deck on the second floor, it collapsed, and he broke his collarbone and suffered a concussion. He's still in hospital. Is the rental owner responsible? Should we do something now, notify the owner of the cottage of a legal claim? What do we do? That's crazy. 
Well, the what to do thing is give us a call. Um, right. You know, certainly we we can help you through the initial process of it, and whether or not there you know is a claim that you want to go ahead with, we can figure out. But yes, you would want to notify the owner of the property. Ultimately, um, who's going to be responsible is going to depend on what we discover as the claim progresses. So certainly you would want to be naming the owner of the property. That almost goes without saying. Um, but also in addition to that, um, it's possible that the while one person might own the property, it might be leased out to right. you know someone else who is... Um, you know, providing other people with rental space from time to time. There may be a property manager who's been hired in order to look after the property. And you might want to go further back than that because we're talking about something with the, the structure itself. The structure failed here. And so we'd want to know who built that structure um, yeah. and did they build it according to the code and who inspected it? Who said that this was okay to go? Typically, um, there's going to be a municipal inspection. Um, anytime that there is anything being built on a property, they're going to have to come in and take a look at it. And so we want to see whether the inspector did a good job. And so you might wind up naming all of those different uh, parties. You could name the owner. You can name whoever is leasing the property, a property manager, um, whoever constructed the, the deck that we're talking about, and whoever inspected it. That's five potential targets um, for a legal claim. And you would want to make sure that all of them are put on notice. Now, you're not going to know who they all are out of the mm -hmm. gate. You may only know the owner, but when you notify them, you will ask them for the to identify all of these other potential targets. Because when, you know, when we're talking about it right now, we don't know who is at fault for this accident. We really don't. And so it's a matter of doing further investigation and finding out who the potential targets are and then you start the legal claim and you get much more information at that point. You know, it's, it's funny, and this, this speaks to why you need to call your firm and get this underway, because the average person, a layman, would probably just go after the renter or the rental place and, and deal with it. And say, like, okay, I guess that's all I can do. But see five different people possibly involved. I mean, nobody would ever be able to navigate that on their own. It'd be impossible. And, and you know, I, I, I'm sort of limiting it to one for each category of potential right. target, but there could yeah. be more than one involved, too. There might be more than one owner. Um, the construction may have involved more than one person, and it could have involved an architect as well. There's another potential um, yeah, right. person to go after. Um, so, you know, you never know how many there's going to be. I'm trying to simplify it as much as possible. But, yes, it can get very complex. Now, it won't always be that case. It could well be that there is, you know, one person who is really at fault for this, and it becomes very obvious very quickly, and that's great. Mm -hmm. But it's often not the case. And even if that is the case, it often takes quite a while until you're confident that that is how it's going to play out. Right. Uh, before we break, Injury Calculator, give us some details. Sure. This is a really fantastic tool if anyone is out there and wants to understand what their pain and suffering uh, might be worth. So if you've been injured, someone else has done something to cause you to be injured, whether it's a car accident, whether you've slipped and fell, um, or you know, like Greg uh, or Greg's brother, um, you had an accident at a cottage, what have you, and you want to know what your pain and suffering is worth. That can be really difficult to understand because you're trying to put a dollar value yeah. on your pain and suffering. And so, you know, there's no intuitive way to do that. So the only way to really do that is to take a look at what the courts have done in similar situations. People who have had similar injuries um, of the same age or close to the same age, what have they done in the past? That's how we figure out what is likely to happen to you. And so the best way to figure this out is to go to injurycalculator.ca. All you have to do is put in a few minor pieces of information. We're talking about um, your age, when the accident happened, how it happened, and what your injuries are. You don't have to identify yourself. 
you put the, those uh, pieces of information in, it can take you 20 seconds or less, and you'll get a range for what your pain and suffering is likely going to be worth. If you want to follow up on that, by all means, you can put in your email and we can contact you and we can go from there. But if you just want the information, visit the site, get the information. There's nothing to identify you. So this is free information. It's available to you. It's very easy to understand and should answer at least that initial question. Serious injuries, not so serious injuries. How do you navigate? How do you prioritize when it comes to dealing with it? We'll get to that question. More of your emails as well. It is help at the insurancelawyer.ca. And the number, one 990 Hang on, lots more to go. The Insurance and Injury Law Show, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six is the number. As you know, the email as well, help at the insurance lawyer.ca. We talked about the injury calculator. James uh, went into it with some depth just before the end of the last segment. Again, it's free, easy to use, takes about 30 seconds. There is a contact button on the bottom. If not, you'll walk away anonymous, and you've got yourself a lot more information on your pain and suffering uh, as well. So you've uh, you've been involved in very complicated, serious injuries and disabilities over your career, say. It's, is there a difference between serious injuries and disabilities? claims and lesser ones in terms of how your legal team deals with them? In other words, do you place uh, more of a priority on the serious ones over lesser ones, or how does that work? Great question. Um, my Part of my job as a lawyer is to essentially act as a gatekeeper. So when someone comes to see me or they call me for advice, I want to determine whether or not there's going to be a legitimate claim there, whether it's something that I feel that my office can help with and that it's going to be worthwhile bringing the claim. If I make that decision, then there is no difference um, in terms of you know w- how we prioritize the work. If I have a client who has a legal problem that I'm helping with, they are a priority every bit as much as any other claim that I have. Mm-hmm. Now, that will depend on the timing. So for example, I had a claim that uh, went to trial last year. It was a smaller file. Um, it certainly wound up being one of my smaller files, but it was going to trial. And if you have something going to trial, you have to focus almost all your attention on that file. Now, you still have to make sure um, that you're answering emails and keeping up with your correspondence and all your files, but the rest of the time, the rest of the focus is going to be on that case going to trial, and that's the way it needs to be. And every client I have should rest assured that if their case ever happened to go to trial, and very few do, but if it did go to trial, that I would provide the exact same focus, whether it's a small file or a large file, because that's what's required. If the case has come through my door, it is a priority, and you don't rank them in any other way. Now, one thing I do want to say, whether whether someone comes to me and they have a valid claim or not, I'm not going to try and get rid of them if they don't. Um, you know, I, I feel that it's part of my duty as a lawyer to spend time with anyone who's contacting me for advice and to give them as much time as they need to understand exactly what the situation is. And if I don't feel that they have a claim, why I feel that way. And I'll do that. And there's no charge for the initial consultation. And even if I know in the first minute or two that there's not going to be a claim, I'm happy to spend 20 minutes, half hour, even an hour if necessary, to walk you through it and to help you to understand what the issue is. You know, there, there are reasons why I'm willing to do that. And they may not be obvious, but most of my work comes from referrals. We certainly have people who listen to the show and will call us, but 
Most of my work comes from referrals. They can be referrals from other lawyers, uh, referrals from doctors that I use during the process, from former clients, but also I get a lot of referrals these days from people who have contacted me about a potential claim where I've told them, you don't have a claim and here is why. And I've spent the time with them to walk them through all of the issues and why it's not going to be worthwhile pursuing their claim. And when they've exhausted all of their questions and I've spent all the time, I say to them, listen, if you have any issues in the future, um, if you have anyone else um, who needs legal help, just give me a call or have them give me a call. And that happens because people understand that um, if if you're talking to someone who's giving you the time of day, who's providing you um, answers to every question that you have, then that's worthwhile and that's someone that they're going to be willing um, to send their friends and family to if they need legal help as well. So if you're in that situation or you know someone in that situation, have them give me a call. There is no charge for the consultation. You've got nothing to lose, and I will spend as much time as is necessary to walk you through and to help you to understand um, what your claim is about. And if it's worthwhile, I'll tell you why. And if it's not, I'll tell you why as well. That number, one 990 Email works as well, help at theinsurancelawyer.ca for James. Uh, I got one right now. I'll get to this email. Next one's from Manny. says, my little brother, Savan, was diagnosed with a psychiatric issue late last year. He got short-term disability, but then the same insurer who paid him STD denied him LTD because they say that he is not totally disabled. I don't understand how the same company can approve him for STV, agreeing that he is disabled from working, and then deny him LTD and say that he is not disabled. How does that work? Can you help? Well, Manny, your first problem is that you're applying logic to the decisions of an insurance company. Um, and so let's move away from that. I don't mean to make light of you know, your brother's situation here at all. Sure. I don't. But you also can't assume that everything that insurance company is doing is going to make sense. It won't unless you look at it through the prism of what their objective is. And so their objective is to make as much money as possible. They are a business. That is what they are trying to do. Mm -hmm. They're not there to help you or your brother. They are there to make money. And they make money by cutting you or your brother or whoever is making a claim, by cutting them off as soon as possible or by denying their benefits. Now, ostensibly the reason why they may be cutting them off, why they might be able to support this in theory, is because during the short-term disability, um, during the time when your brother's getting short-term disability, it may well be that it wasn't worthwhile for them to assess the claim towards the end of it because it was so close and it would cost them enough money at the end that it didn't make any sense to cut them off before short-term disability was finished. Typically, it's three months or six months, something in that range. But once you get started on long-term disability, if you are paying at the beginning of long-term disability, the test at that point remains the same for the next two years. And so it is a critical decision point for the insurance company. And if they approve you for for long-term disability at the outset, in other words, as soon as your STD is finished, then that means that they could potentially be on the hook for up to two years unless something changes. And so that really is a focus um, for them. That's a focal point for them to make a decision. Whereas, you know, the last month or so of short-term disability may not be a focal point. So they're taking a hard look at it when your brother is making this claim for long-term disability benefits. But the test is really the same for short-term disability and long-term disability. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense. So have your brother please give us a call. Um, we can go through it. And really the important thing is whether or not his doctors continue to um, support uh, that he's not able to work. And as long as that's the case, there's almost always going to be a very strong argument against the denial of LTD benefits. 
Mediation, litigation, consultation. Murky Waters will explain more of it, especially when it comes to mediation of a claim. That's coming up. The phone number anytime, one 990 9646 and help at We'll keep rolling after a short break. The Insurance and Injury Law Show, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six is the number. Get a hold of James and the crew. Help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. So mention it as we went to break mediation. Can you explain what happens at a typical mediation? What are your claims? Do all claims go to mediation? How often do claims settle at mediation? Stuff like that. Lots of questions here about mediation. So let's see if yeah. I can answer all of them here, John. <laughs> so um, can I explain what happens at typical mediation? Sure. Um, First, let's distinguish between disability claims and injury claims. So a disability claim typically is going to come to mediation quite quickly, um, oftentimes less than a year, and if not, you know, just after. Um, Injury claims tend to take a little bit longer. A year and a half, two years is not unusual, uh, at least for our firm, and we push things forward pretty quickly. Other firms, you'll see three, four, sometimes five years down the road. Um, that's not how we run our files. We like to try and get to the negotiating table as quickly right. as possible. But there is a difference between a disability claim and insurance claim. So keep that in mind. Uh, what happens at those mediations, though, is um, quite similar, at least in terms of how the mediation is structured. So it takes place in what you might think of as a typical boardroom, you know, long wood table. And I'll be there at the mediation with my client and the lawyer for the defendant will be on the other side, and they're going to be joined by an insurance adjuster um, who is responsible for handling that file. Whether it's a disability claim or an insur- or an injury claim, there's going to be an insurance adjuster, and the insurance adjuster is really the counterpart to my client. They are the ones, like my client, who is going to make the ultimate decision as to whether or not they want to settle the file for whatever the last offer is on the table. So like my client, they are the ones who are controlling the money aspect of it. The lawyers on both sides are there to provide advice to their clients. And so the way that it works, the mediator will spend five or 10 minutes talking about the process that is typically aimed at my client because my client is almost always going to be the only one in the room who hasn't gone through mediation before. The lawyers and the insurance suggestors have all gone through this many times in almost every case. And so after the mediators finish giving their five or 10 minute talk, I'll open with um, five or 10 minutes about my client's case. More often than not, the way that I like to do it, I like to focus on the issues that are raised by the defendant in their mediation memo. So before the mediation even happens, both sides will exchange a, a mediation memo setting out the strengths and weaknesses and any important documents. And I'll take a look at what the defendant has written and I'll focus on what issues that they have with the claim. And in my opening at the actual mediation, I'll identify the weaknesses that the defendant sees in my case and I'll address them as directly as I can. And the reason I do that is because I've already set out my client's best case scenario in the memo. I don't need to do that again. If I want to get the attention of the other side, I think the best way to do that in my experience has been to talk through, talk with their language. So acknowledge that these are the issues that they have and as best I can, address them head on. Let them know that I see what you're talking about, but here is why it's not a big deal. Here is how I plan to address it if this case were to go any further. And I find that that is the best way to get some movement on the other side. The lawyer for the defendant is then going to do their opening, and then what will happen is the defendant's lawyer and the adjuster will go to a different room. And the mediator will come to me and they'll ask for a first offer, which right. I'll give to the, the mediator, and he'll take it to the, uh, to the defendant, and they're going to reject that first offer because they always do. 
and they're going to give us a first offer, which we're going to reject as well too. And it'll go back and forth. And Hmm. at the end of the day, you either have a settlement or you don't. Um, So that's the way the process works. So the other questions you have here, do all claims go to mediation? Not necessarily, but now almost all of them do. In Toronto, in Ottawa, and I think perhaps in Windsor, although I have to double check that, um, in some of the major jurisdictions in Ontario, there is mandatory mediation. So in those jurisdictions, yes, they will all go to mediation. If you have a claim that is issued in a non-mandatory mediation jurisdiction, they still almost always go to mediation. Um, It is the least expensive way in most cases to resolve a claim. And once you've started the process, if there is any basis for your claim, both sides are going to have an interest in trying to resolve it um, quickly and as inexpensively as possible. And so almost every claim is going to go to mediation. Occasionally they won't, but that's a rarity. Sometimes they'll go to more than one mediation. The last part of the question you asked is how often do claims settle at mediations? Um, Again, there's going to be a difference between disability claims and injury claims. I find that the disability claims settle somewhat more frequently than the injury claims. But even with the injury claims, if they don't settle at mediation, the vast majority are still going to settle at some point between mediation and trial. It's still very unusual that cases go to trial. It happens but it's unusual. What is critical, whether it's a disability claim, whether it's an injury claim, is you have to have a good idea going into the mediation what your case is worth, and you have to be prepared to walk away if they're not going to pay that, or at least come very close. If they are not going to pay good value for your file, understanding the strengths and weaknesses, then you have to be prepared to walk away. That doesn't mean, you know, when you walk away that you're automatically in a courtroom the next day, not at all. And if you walk away, you know, it's often going to be a year or so at least until you're getting to trial. So you have to be prepared to do that if the defendant isn't being reasonable. If you're not prepared to do that, they're going to figure it out pretty quickly. And that's going to give them incentive to lowball you. And that just puts you in a very difficult position. So not every case is going to settle at mediation. Um, Most do, whether it's disability or injury cases, but you still always have to be prepared to walk away. Start with that phone call, one 990 and help at Say We'll get to an email actually from, uh, from a fellow lawyer who has a question for you when we uh, come back from a short break. This is the Insurance and Injury Law Show, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. one 990 is the number, help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. We used it earlier today. Uh, James made reference to it. MyDisabilityQuestions.com. If you have questions, well, about disability, there's uh, a way to ask them on that site. Drop down menu. There's a good chance that if you uh, do some searching through your question may have already been asked and answered in depth as well so you can check that out mydisabilityquestions.com email from uh, another lawyer unnamed Barry says hi I'm a lawyer in Barry area and I've been in general practice for over 15 years I've been listening to you guys ever since one of my clients had a disability case against an insurance company and I referred him to you I have to say that he was very happy with the result thanks for the information you guys provide I do have a question though I have some clients uh, who I've known for many, many years, and they're concerned about hiring non-local lawyers. Do you guys service all of Ontario or just the GTA, just Toronto? I realize that doing real estate is much different than what you do, uh, which is why I'm asking. Thank you again for the great show. Great question. Uh, So we always appreciate when uh, we have referrals from other lawyers, and I greatly appreciate um, this particular person. I know who this is. Uh, But in any case, yes, we do service all of Ontario. um, And it's important to understand that the decision on which firm to hire really shouldn't be based on who is where, especially now. We live in an age where communication is so simple. 
it is very unusual that I speak to a client that doesn't have the ability um, to not just speak over the phone, but to do a video chat, to send documents very quickly um, by scanning um, and emailing them or faxing them, what have you. Um, so, you know, there isn't really a need to have someone who is right around the corner. Now, having said that, I always like to meet with my clients face to face as much as possible. And at some point during a legal claim, it is necessary that I'm going to be in the same room as my client um, at least once for examinations or mediation. And that's not a problem at all, whether, you know, the client is, you know, in Toronto um, or in Windsor or in Ottawa or in Timmins or Thunder Bay or wherever. That is fine because when it's needed, we can certainly travel to you. Um, in order to do the mediation or the examinations. Um, and it's not an issue at all. We have an office in Ottawa that services Eastern Ontario. Um, and, you know, obviously we have the office in Toronto, the main uh, ST office. Um, but wherever you are, if you're in Ontario, we can certainly provide you with legal services if you have a claim. So not an issue. Um, we can come to you as needed. And for the most part, if you are quite far away from where our office is, we can still deal with you over the phone initially and then as needed come to you. Again, that email is help at the insurancelawyer.ca. Sandra writes in, says, My father slipped on an icy parking lot four months ago outside his friend's condo building in London, uh, London, Ontario. He broke his right ankle and also injured his right shoulder. He used to be independent and even worked part-time at a Canadian Tire, but now he can't do, uh, do that anymore, and we have to help him at home. We took photos of the area of the fall, and an hour later it shows a lot of ice with no salt or sand anywhere. Can we get him any compensation for his injuries? He's not the same 64-year-old he was four months ago, that's for sure. Sandra, um, great job on taking the photographs. Yep. I, I really want to point that out. Anyone listening, if you have a family member um, who has fallen and they you know, tell you about this and it happened that day, Go out and take pictures. Even if you ask them if they've taken pictures, go out and take some more. Yeah. And I say that because, you know, if you fall and you've injured yourself, maybe you have the presence of mind to take photos. But in most cases, particularly if it's serious, you either haven't done it or if you've done it, you've done a fairly cursory job, just taken a picture or two and gotten what you've gotten. And you might not have even taken a look on your phone to see what you have. So have a family member or a friend go out and take some photographs of you know every part of the area where you fell and even the surrounding area as well yeah. too because that can be relevant to show whether or not it's just this particular area that was a problem or whether that was you know the entire parking lot or the entire street or what have you. And so that's all relevant information. But having said that, Based on what you've indicated here, Sandra, it does sound very much like the photographs that you've taken are going to be um, quite suitable and uh, will almost certainly be sufficient in order to create liability against the property owner here, or at least the risk of liability. And I say that because even if it went to court and a court would ultimately say, oh no, you know, there's just not enough here. If you've taken photographs that show that there's you know, ice there and that there's no salt, they know that they're at risk. And if they're at risk, it means that they might have to pay. And if they might have to pay and they might have to go to court in order to resolve it, it means that it could be very expensive for them and they're going to be willing to come to the table. So at the very least, you've created risk there and it sounds like you've done a lot more. So that being the case, your dad sounds as though he has a fairly significant claim. 
Um, so we're talking about an objective injury to the right ankle um, as well as a shoulder injury. So, you know, that's going to have value in terms of pain and suffering for sure, um, possibly even uh, significant value. And the other part of it is um, that, you know, your father does have ongoing income, even if it was only part-time. You know, he's, I, I think you said he's in his 60s. I, I'm not 64, sure. 64, yeah. 64, thank you. Um, you know, if he's working part-time, there's no particular reason to assume that he was going to, you know, stop working at 65. It sounds like he's probably retired and is just doing this in his spare time as a part-time job. So in all likelihood, he probably would have kept doing it as long as he's physically able. And it sounds like he wasn't having any problems before. So he might have continued doing that for another five, six years, maybe even longer. Yeah. And so there is an income loss claim there as well, too. And you have a claim. So, Sandra, you know, you've indicated that you and your family have had to help your father since this accident happened. And so you would have a claim under the Family Law Act um, for the services that you've provided. And if this has had a negative impact on your relationship, then for the loss of care, guidance and companionship. And if you have any children, if you're, you know, so these would be grandchildren, of course, of your father. And if it has impacted their relationship, then they might have a claim as well, too. They may or may not. We have to, you know, take a look at the circumstances, but it's worth exploring. So it does sound as though there are several areas where there's exposure here to um, the property owner. And that's not even accounting for um, the medical and rehabilitation expenses that your right. father um, is likely to have or probably already has had that the owner would be responsible for. So, yes, your father certainly sounds as though he's got a very valid claim. Lots to unpack there. This is why you make that phone call, one 990 9646 we still got time for a couple or, uh, more emails. I think you want to send one over. Help at theinsurancelawyer.ca as well. It's the Insurance and Injury Law Show, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. One triple eight nine nine zero ninety six forty six. Help at the insurance lawyer Get a hold of James and the crew anytime. Please do make that phone call. Write it down and keep it. You want to find out what the pain and suffering component of a claim should be. It could be a small part. Could be a big part. You got to know. Get a ballpark figure. Uh, in any regard, that is injurycalculator.ca as well. You know, coming off that last email, you mentioned about Sander and her dad, and you know he's got claims going forward. Any money he receives, James. Uh, for that claim. Is it taxable? Non-taxable? How does it work? Not taxable. Not taxable? No. Nice. I, when you have an injury claim and you recover anything from the at-fault party, it is not taxable. The only time I'm concerned with um, taxes is in terms of disability claims. Okay. And even then, it's only for the past benefits paid. Anything they pay into the future isn't taxable either. And even then, for past benefits, it really depends on the type of policy. Okay. So for the most part, anything we recover for our clients is not taxable, except or past benefits in some disability cases. Really good moving forward. We get to uh, to Rhonda here. An email says, my long-term disability claim was cut off this week because the insurance doctor I went to see last month said that my illness is not preventing me from doing my uh, doing some type, some type of work. I've got a neuromuscular disease called spinal muscular atrophy. My doctor said that I can't work, but the insurance doctor wrote in his report that I can still do my job. I was a plant manager, which involved a lot of walking. I can't do that anymore. Help. Should I appeal this decision? So first and foremost, I want to say, Rhonda, it sounds as though you're doing the thing that you should be doing, which is listening to your own treating doctor. Right. I can't stress that enough. Your own treating doctor is the one whose interest is in making sure that your well-being is his first priority. The insurance, the insurance doctor that you were sent to, that's not what their objective is. You're going to sign something at the beginning of an assessment with an insurance doctor that says that you do not have the normal patient-doctor relationship that you would typically enjoy with your own treating doctors. That doesn't exist there. 
They're paid by the insurance company. And so whether or not they're going to acknowledge this, there is always going to be a conflict of interest there. It is always going to be the case. They're going to know in the back of their head that if they keep giving opinions that hurt the insurance company, they're going to stop getting business from that insurance company. So whether they will ever acknowledge it or not, they have an incentive to hurt you. They have an incentive to help the insurance company and hurt you, plain and simple. So... Um, First of all, don't accept what the insurance doctor is saying. Listen to your own treating doctors. To answer the other part of your question, should you appeal? No. No, absolutely not. The insurance company has one objective, and that is to make money. That's it. Their objective is not to help you. It's not to pay your benefits. And so understanding that, if you appeal their denial, that appeal is just going to be determined by the same insurance company that has already denied you or cut you off and who still has the exact same objective to make money at your expense. So why continue to give them the power to control your destiny? It's very simple. You start a legal claim and you take the control away from the insurance company. And as soon as you do that, as soon as you have taken the decision-making power away from them, they sing a very different tune. Their legal department gets involved and their legal department is going to know that they have exposure in a case like this where you have you know, a known disease that is preventing you from working, where you have treating doctors that are saying to you, you cannot work. Um, yes, you know, it, 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 they have an opinion that will play against that, but how strong is that opinion really going to be? To some extent, it's going to depend on the expertise of your doctors and that insurance doctor. I don't know who they used. And even if we were to assume that they hired someone who is a so-called expert in the relevant field here, at the very best for the insurance company, it's someone who's going to have seen you on one occasion, probably for half an hour. And that opinion is juxtaposed with your treating doctors who have been seeing you probably for years and who understand your your history and who know what your health is like um, and are in a much better position to comment on what your abilities are. And they have seen you over time, which the insurance doctor will not have done. They'll see how you've reacted to different treatments, which your insurance doctor will not have done. Um, so in all cases, it's always going to be the case that your uh, own treating doctors are in a much better position to give their opinion. And the courts understand that. Doesn't mean that the insurance doctor can never win um, if you know your own doctors are being really unreasonable, but that's rare. Yeah. That's really rare. Um, almost always a treating doctor is going to be preferred over someone who um, is just providing a one-off assessment, especially one who has um, an incentive to provide an opinion, a monetary incentive to provide an opinion opposed to you. You know, it kind of leads me to uh, be the uh, the last question for the day, and that is when you have a legal claim for either LTD or an accident, how do you choose which experts you hire, who pays for them? What's the benefit of hiring them? Well, first of all, we will fund the the payment okay. of any experts that we decide that we need in order to advance a legal claim. That's not something our clients have to pay for. And I'm going to choose the experts. I'm going to base that on my own experience um, and based on what is already in the medical file, what your treating doctors are saying your issues are. Based on those issues, I'm going to look at my own roster of experts, and I'm going to decide which experts to send you to. Now, the the roster of experts I use, there are two criteria that I really want to make sure that each of them are going to satisfy. Number one, they have to be excellent doctors, and number two, they have to understand how the legal process works, preferably with some experience in the legal process, 
But it's not necessarily the case as long as they understand how the process works. And I say that because it's not enough to just be a good doctor. In my case, if I'm hiring you for an opinion, I have to be able to use that opinion as the foundation of the evidence um, in favor of you and against the defendant. And so in doing that, I want to make sure that the expert doctor I choose is able to express their opinion in a way that's going to be useful, that yeah. is going to address the legal questions that need to be a- to be answered by a medical expert. And not every great doctor has the ability to do that. So I have doctors that I've used for years, and the doctors that I use, they tell me the way it is. I don't look for experts that are just going to give me a report that I know is going to say all of the wonderful things that I want it to say. I look for experts that are going to tell me what's really going on. And I know that when I get these experts' reports that I have a solid case. And if my expert comes back to me and says, look, there's a problem here, then I'm going to know that there's an issue. Your case is what it is. And I want to understand that better. So the experts I use are experts that are going to provide an honest opinion um, that uh, comes from a place of significant medical expertise Mm -hmm. and with the ability to express that in a way that's going to be helpful going forward. And the benefit to you, not only do you get this great opinion that's going to help your legal claim, but you're also getting an opinion that helps you medically. You're getting an opinion from an expert, often someone who is recognized as one of the leading experts in the city or even the country um, in their particular field that is going to discuss not only what's going on, but what your prognosis is and what treatment is recommended. And that can be very helpful for you, particularly if you haven't been able to see an expert in that field yet. You give that information, that report that's generated to your family doctor, and then you're able to get the treatment that's been recommended for you. So it can be very helpful, not just legally, but also medically as well, too. It's a huge advantage and one that you don't have to pay for. My firm's going to pay for it. That's good for another week. We'll uh, we'll wrap it for there. You want to get a hold of James, the rest of the team, emails your first shot. That's fine. Help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. There's also the phone call, one 990 And again, we'll mention it one more time. You want to find out what the pain and suffering component of a claim, your claim should be, a friend, a family member, injurycalculator.ca as well. Till next time, the Insurance and Injury Law Show, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.